HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast, which is brought to you by Tacticam. This is your home for all things outdoors in the Badger State, and I'm your host, Josh Raley. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. We've got a fantastic episode in store for you today. I got a chance to record with a buddy of mine, Alex Gramovat. He's originally from Florida, moved to southern Wisconsin a couple of years ago. Uh, so he and I are both transplants to the state. We've had similar experience moving here to Wisconsin and finding a whole host of outdoor opportunities. We talk about his growing up in a non-hunting family, how he transitioned from a non-hunter, possibly even anti-hunting, to where he is now as a pure opportunist. He's literally doing something outside no matter the season. He embraces whatever the season has to offer. He hunts, he fishes, he forages and hikes and gardens and trains his bird dog. You name it, Alex does it. He also had an opportunity to harvest a great buck on public land this past gun season, and he shares that story in this episode. If you're not already, go ahead and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. Leave a five-star review if you enjoy the content. It helps us spread the word. If you're downloading on Apple Podcasts, which it looks like most of you are, leave us a written review. Let me know what you think of the show. Rate us on Spotify if you tune in there. Also, follow along with us on Instagram, probably... Uh, the best thing that you can do, though, is to share this podcast with your buddies, others who also love the outdoors and are passionate about our natural resources. Also on Instagram, tag me in your photos. Uh, I'll share those so that we can collectively highlight all that this great state has to offer, even during this uh, somewhat unbearable July heat wave that we've had going on here uh, the last week or so. Uh, before we jump in, got to give a huge shout out to our partners who make this show possible. First and foremost, Tacticam, the title sponsor of this show, the first partner of this show. Great people over at Tacticam. Uh, we actually have an episode with them uh, coming up here in the next couple of weeks. I've been holding on to that episode, though. Uh, we talked about a few products that just weren't ready to be talked about just yet. So I do just want to say this, though. The Reveal X Gen 2 cameras are absolutely amazing. Uh, and their customer support is is second to none, in my opinion. I had a little issue this past week getting two of my cameras connected. I gave a call to customer service. They had a callback option. They called me back, had me squared away in a matter of minutes. Fantastic customer support, which is way more than you can say for pretty much any other trail camera in this price point. Go check them out. You won't be disappointed. Tacticam.com or RevealCellCam.com. Next up, Deer Lab. I absolutely love this app. It helps me keep track of all of my photos, helps me keep track of my cameras. It allows you to create individual profiles for a specific deer, syncs photos with local weather so that you're not having to go back and manually check what the weather was doing when you got pictures of that shooter that you're trying to hone in on. Go start your free trial today at DeerLab.com. When you're ready to purchase, you can use the code WISCONSIN, all caps, for 20% off of any plan that is DeerLab.com. WISCONSIN, all caps, 
20% off of any plan. And then finally, Huntworth. This camo does not disappoint. I've been testing their tarnum pattern lately in uh, some new areas, some different kinds of terrain that I've hunted over the last couple of years, and it blends in really, really well. This year, I'm going to be hunting here in southern Wisconsin. I'm going to be hunting South Carolina in September, northern Georgia in October, and deep, deep south Alabama in February. And, uh, man, I've got confidence that that tarnum pattern is going to perform super well in each of these settings. It's a really uh, versatile camo pattern. So go check them out, huntworthgear.com. Big thanks to all of those partners. Their support helps keep this show going so I can bring you great content each and every week. Now go show them some love. I know you won't be disappointed with any of the products from these brands. Now, here is my conversation with Alex Gramovat. Joining me for this week's episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast is Alex Gramovat. Alex, how's it going, man? It's wonderful. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, it is a rough part of July right now. Uh, where you are in Wisconsin was how hot yesterday? Uh, about 99 and very humid yeah. and raining. Dude, that's miserable. It, yep, there's a sauna, but it's short, short season. Got to appreciate it in February. <laughs> Embrace it for all it's worth now and, and remember that winter is coming. Exactly. Man. Well, Alex, uh, you and I met through uh, through our wives, I guess. Uh, my yeah. wife and your wife ended up working out together um, at a, a gym that will remain nameless so that we protect the uh, protect the identities of the public lands that we like to haunt. And uh, to come to find out, you and I hunted the same piece of public and uh, enjoy a lot of the same stuff. So we kind of hit it off. Uh, I've enjoyed getting to know each other. But let's kick it off like this for those who maybe don't know you. Who are you? Where are you from? Sure. Uh, so Alex Gramovat, um, originally from Tampa, Florida, uh, moved to southern Wisconsin from Tallahassee, Florida, um, native Floridian, and just been an outdoorsman, enjoyed being outside pretty much my whole life. So uh, it's a natural, natural fit up here. Yeah. Wonderful. So how long have you been hunting and fishing? I've been fishing since I could stand. Um, I was catching okay. bluegills off the dock in my backyard in Tampa when I was like two and a half. Um, hunting, it's a complicated question. Um, uh, I hunted a little bit back home in, in, in Tallahassee area and kind of got tired of it uh, for various reasons that I'm sure we can get into later. And so overall, I probably would say five years, maybe six years, something like that. Yeah. And you, you did not grow up in a, in a hunting family. Did your family fish? For a while. Um, it, it it became a point of, I don't want to hurt the fish for my dad who I grew up fishing with. Um, he had this philosophical change, which is fine, uh, to each their own, but he ended up stopped where he would enjoy fishing anymore um so we stopped fishing together when i was pretty young um so yeah that that, he uh just had this change of heart where where any type of animal should be protected which i respect i understand sure i have a difference of opinion but um yeah, we had definitely not a hunting family by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, what was that like for you as a kid? Because um, it seems like you really enjoyed hunting. So what was that like from for you as a kid? I mean, obviously, where you're at now, like you just said, respecting your dad's uh, difference of opinion, 
but what was that transition like from you for you? For, so like we used to hunt or we used to fish together, really enjoyed it to now we don't do it anymore. It's a roller coaster. Um, it, it, I was bummed for a long time that, that something that I've loved doing, especially back home, obviously uh, in Tallahassee area, we had a boat when we go out in the grass flats of the Gulf of Mexico and catch trout, redfish, flounder, all that. And I could never get him to come fishing with me. And uh, it, that there were a few years where it, it kind of bummed me out, but then I just sort of accepted it, that that's his prerogative. That's what he wants to do. We'll do other stuff together. Um, as far as this transitioning into more into hunting, because I love living up here and I love fishing up here, but you can't replicate grass flats and chasing speckled trout in five feet of water. I love that. Sure, and sure. Trout, I love trout fishing up here, but it's just not the same. So I do enjoy fishing up here, but I definitely would, would say that hunting has become more of a priority up here than fishing has. So that being said, that transition and trying to explain to them has been a challenge and it's something that's still underway. Um, uh, it's hard to have a conversation about why my opinion on this changed when there's no receptiveness on the other side. So, I mean, I grew up not knowing any better, right? I, that hunting is bad. That it's, it's for, for uh, people who are overcompensating and for people who just like to go kill stuff. And I didn't know any better, right? I believed all that, uh, growing up because I just plain didn't know any better, didn't have any other experiences. So I had an epiphany uh, probably in my mid twenties that, you know, why, <laughs> why is that bad? Why is that inherently bad? Um, how is it any different than farming and, and harvesting goats or sheep or pigs or chickens or cows or, or pick any domesticated livestock? And how is it any different than a fish, um, than killing a fish, which I eat trout and redfish all the time. And it just kind of caught myself in my own hypocrisy of what I believed. And my opinion changed, but it's tough with parents that aren't receptive to even having that conversation. So it's something I still tiptoe around. Uh, we'll talk about, I guess, a little bit later about the deer that I got this year. I haven't even told them that I hunted deer wow. this year or wow. last year. Um, uh, that's hanging in the living room. That's going to be a shock for them when they come in. Cause I'm not taking it, <laughs> taking the mountain down, but it, it's something that we tiptoe around. We have, we have an English setter. He's a bird dog. He's a hunting dog. And he, I mean, he's as sweet as can be. And they, uh, my dad called him a murder dog. So it, there's this just, uh, it's a challenge. And I, I don't know. I, I wish I had the, the golden, the golden ticket to, to, solving this problem, but I don't, I don't know what the answer is. So it's just something I try to avoid, which is pretty awkward and unfortunate. Yeah, man. You know, I think that you're probably not alone in today's, you know, the general ethos of our society right now. And a lot of people have family that, that are not just, it's not just that they don't hunt, but they're anti hunting. They're against hunting. Have you found, I mean, I know you said you try to just kind of tiptoe around the issue because it, it is awkward and it is a hard conversation. Have you found any inroads, you know, if there's anybody out there thinking, I need to have these kinds of conversations, have you had any success with these conversations or is it just like, you know what, at this point of our relationship, it's just not worth that difficulty that comes along with the talk? Uh, I feel... 
in individual moments, like I might have had like glimmers of, of success and then one step forward, two steps back. Um, okay. Yeah. So it, I feel like at times there's, there's a sense of understanding. Uh, I had a conversation recently with my mom about something and she was like, Oh, what are you eating for dinner? I was like, Oh, reading the last present from last year for dinner. She's like, Oh, and she you know, got all weird about it and then was like, well, I'm going to go into Publix and grab some chickens. I was like, well, um, you know, I hope those chickens <laughs> didn't feel any pain when they died. <laughs> and she was like, oh, they did. And I was like, so how is that any different than a pheasant? And she kind of got quiet for a second and was like, I don't want to have this conversation now. So uh, at a minimum, I think she knew that I got you a little bit. Yeah. And it's, it's not like I'm trying to get you. I'd rather have an open discussion, but it's hard when there's no receptiveness. So I, I, I wish I had any type of advice or anything positive to say, but I, I don't, I, I, I just, I don't know what the answer is. Cause it, it, it comes down. This isn't one of those topics. That's just from the perspective of, of like my folks who are, or are anti-hunting. It's not just being anti-hunting. It's a moralistic thing. It, they think they're morally right, which is fine. Um, I, I understand. Uh, ending a life is a, a hard thing to do it's a hard thing to wrap your head around there's emotion involved unless you're a sociopath <laughs> there's emotion <laughs> involved <laughs> so it's not just as simple as yeah i killed it right you have you have a connection that you ended that animal's life so it it's uh it helps i go on with that it's not as simple it's not black and white and, and when you bring moral arguments or, or moral stances into a discussion like that, you're not just talking about the topic at hand. You're talking about how these somebody personally feels in their core about something. And um, it's the hardest opinion to change. Yeah. Would you, would you have considered yourself anti-hunting before you started hunting or was it more of just a, I don't do it. I think people that do it are silly, but I'm just going to kind of stay over here in my own lane. It's a great question. Um, yes to all of the above. Okay. Um, I, I, I understood it. I guess I fundamentally understood it. I didn't really have any desire to, to get involved in it. I wasn't, I wasn't sure how to process ending a ending something's life like that through a different means than catching a fish. And um, I mean, I club all my fish for what it's worth because I would hope somebody would do the same for me if I, they <laughs> caught me by a hook, right? Sure. And it just ended as quickly as possible. Make uh, why let anything suffer, whether it's living in a live well or slowly just dying on ice. I just hit him over the head. Um, but it, I, so I guess it was. I was anti to a point. I, there were a lot more. There were there were areas of hunting that were more black and white. Um, things like bear hunting, things like trophy hunting that I have now changed my opinion on. Do I want to go shoot a rhinoceros? No, I have no desire to go do that. But it's hard to not be a hypocrite. So why is the life of actually my argument on this is, uh, it comes down to gestation period. So a blue whale, the life of a blue whale or an elephant is inherently worth more than a squirrel because it takes them like nine years be to become, you know, uh, 
uh, reproductively viable. So that's kind of where I draw the line in my head. But but the cute and cuddly argument doesn't work. So bears have multiple cubs a year. Um, how is killing a bear any different than killing a deer or killing a rabbit? Um, and the answer is it's not. And so I would see things like that. And I kind of drew the line at cute and fuzzy, cute and cuddly, <clears throat> things like ducks. Like, why would anybody go hunt ducks? They're so beautiful. It's just a small duck. You know, why, why is that worth it? And then I started duck hunting and man, this is fun. The, the hunt itself is so much fun. So I, I, I I don't, I, I don't want to say I was anti-hunting, but I was, I, I leaned more that way, I guess you could say, um, previously until I just started questioning my own opinions and saying, why do you think this? Are you, do you think this because you were told to think this for 25 years of your life? Is there a logical reason to think this way or not? And that, so questioning myself got me to where I am today uh, as far as my opinions on it. And who knows, those could change in 10 years too. I could have another major epiphany. Um, at, at, like my dad, for instance, he had an instance where a, a situation in Vietnam, he accidentally killed a water buffalo. And that's what actually was a turning point for him. That it was in this war zone and he accidentally killed this water buffalo. And it just kind of shook him to the core of, why is that water buffalo's life like it's an innocent water buffalo in the situation? Like the people that are trying to kill you aren't, but and that's when it all changed for him. It was that one defining moment. So I could have that defining moment next year. I don't know. But wow. for now at least, I think what I've got is a reasonable, logical opinion on this that is based in based in logic of the situation, of 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 questioning my own opinions, questioning facts of of these animals and and just facts of human existence it comes down to, to how humans have existed forever versus the last 50 years when commercialized agriculture has put everything in little little styrofoam packs in, in the uh, grocery store so that's different it's a new phenomenon in my opinion yeah yeah tell tell me about then that when did you decide, so, I mean, you, you were fishing, right. And, and started to ask these questions. How did you transition then into, well, I'm at least going to try hunting. Cause I imagine you weren't like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to buy all the gear. I'm going to be a diehard hunter this year. Like I imagine that was a, a little bit of a process for you. So can you kind of explain how your, tr how that transition worked? Absolutely. Um, a friend of mine back home, actually our friend's dad, quit his job as an engineer, said, I've had enough of working for other people, bought a farm, and um, that was that. So uh, we would go out and help him and learned a lot about growing food, about uh, where your tomatoes come from. I, I, I was a townhouse at the time. I was in graduate school, and I started growing vegetables out on the deck. And was like, wow, I can do this here. Like, you don't need a farm, but that experience of seeing – him go from complete suburban Corvette driving engineer to, to, you know, farmer sinking his tractor in the mud and having to get it pulled out and go, kind of going through that process with him uh, was eye opening. So there were deer obviously on the property. There was small Florida deer uh, actually saw an albino deer out there once um, had it 
glassed up and I couldn't, couldn't pull the trigger. There was no chance I could shoot that. that oh, year. Man. Um, yeah, it was cool. They're, but they're not exactly common down there. Not exactly. Um, it, it, yeah, it was the first one that I, the only one I've ever seen, but wow. uh, we started, I had a couple of friends that hunted out there and, you know, a buddy of mine got a couple of does and helped him clean them. And, uh, he raised, he had guinea fowl out there. So we would harvest some guinea fowl, um, got some goats from the neighbor and we harvested some goats and they goat meat for a while and sort of just by proxy getting thrown headfirst into the deep end of this more rural lifestyle. It was appealing. I went out there for fun for a reason. It, uh, so I'm an Eagle Scout. Uh, I, I guess I should probably mention that, that I grew up in the outdoors, not hunting and fishing like my parents wouldn't like, but backpacking, I did 50 miles on the Appalachian trail. Um, so uh, being involved in Boy Scouts for so long, and doing all of these outdoor activities, you know, you go to college and you just go to the college bars and do all that and live that lifestyle. And there was always something missing. So this opportunity to get back into quote the outdoors, even from an agricultural standpoint was huge. And, uh, it's something that I did because it was fun. So just kind of by proxy of these deer are here and how is that deer any different from the chickens that, that he would raise or the guinea fowl or the goats or the cow that we bought part of from the guy down the street? How is that any different? And it was kind of an eye-opening experience for me of, uh, and really just built more of a connection to connection to connection, saying connection to your food has become so cliche, but connection to this world that's bigger than us and, and how, humans in the post-industrial world have existed since the beginning of time. And it, 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 it's uh, almost like instinctual. I, I hate to use the word primal because of certain influencers on Instagram who have overused that word and made it kind of depressing. Um, <laughs> uh, don't forget to eat your raw liver for the day. I was going to ask but, if you've been eating liver. And, uh, I mean, I saved the liver from that deer, uh, no scale, um, but not a huge fan, definitely not eating pounds of it raw every day. <laughs> but um, it, it, this whole, it feels almost wrong to not embrace providing for yourself. It's, it's kind of anti the human experience of, until the last maybe hundred years. And uh, uh, so it's, it's, I don't know, it feels feels right. It kind of lets you get out your uh, your inner inner chimpanzee or inner like uh, Cro Magnon man and and go provide for yourself and feel feel sense of pride that you can what you can do. You can feed yourself. That's huge. That um, people need food and shelter and air, clean air and clean water to drink. So if you can provide for your own food in one one means or another, whether that's through you know small scale agriculture, which I'm a huge fan of growing food outside that we have a garden um, or hunting and fishing. Why would you not? That's, isn't that part of this human experience Man. and part of what makes the, the North American model of conservation so great. I'm sorry to cut you off, but no. we have a unique, we have a unique opportunity here that, that this model of conservation that our country is built on. You can't do that in Europe. Uh, that's been, it, it, it's been banned from the common folk. For, for centuries, it's only for the, for the elites. And I know there's some movements to get that, uh, that access more opened up. 
but something so wonderful about living in this country and uh, something that someone's negligent, in my opinion, to not try to take advantage of to some extent, whether it's foraging. You don't have to go kill deer every year or elk or hunt doll sheep. Go forage. Go 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 forage for mushrooms and uh, ramps and all of that stuff. I, I, it's it's awesome. It's an opportunity. It's a missed opportunity if you don't take advantage of it. Yeah, man, I, I love the way you put that a second ago of like, if I don't take advantage of this, I'm missing out on a piece of the human experience. And like, I, I, I guess I've never really thought about it in those terms before, but it really is like, I mean, that is a huge part of what it means to be human. At least like you've said until the last hundred years when things have been very, very different, but yeah, man, I, I want to, I want to embrace that. And I want my kids to embrace that. I mean, it, it, that's a, that's huge. So Tell me about the moment that it all kind of came into fruition or came to fruition for you, like when you went hunting and took that first deer. Like what was that like going from where you were and sort of this, I don't know, awakening going on? And I'm sure it's developed a lot since since even that moment, but, but tell me about that. I don't think the deer is probably a good example of, of that. I, okay. I, so uh, I guess probably to be honest, those, those guinea pal were really the first thing that I, I realized this is no different than anything else. And, um, and then the, the goats, of course they're, they're goats, right? They're cute. They're goats, but like, put it in perspective of a life is a life. And then I remember very clearly I went on a quail hunt back home uh, in South Georgia and busting cubbies of quail under English setters and thinking and looking at those, they're so fast and they're so small and they're such good and so evasive and looking at those what, five, six, seven quail that we had um, and was like, wow, you are so perfectly adapted to live in this environment you do it so well. And how is the life of this palm sized bird any different than anything else? And it just all sort of clicked pretty quickly over that, that time frame. Um, and, and it, it got to hunting on that farm back home that it, it kind of became a circus a little bit, uh, just because of the sheer volume of guinea fowl. So it, it almost didn't feel like hunting. It kind of felt like I don't know, felt like something else, but um, I'm, I'm happy to talk a little bit about the hunting that I've done up here, which I think is much more and kind of my hunting style up here that is completely different. And that deer here shook me a little bit for different reasons, but it, I think it was more because of the style of hunting and that it was, in my opinion, that was a hunt. It wasn't um, sitting over a corn pile, you know, waiting for something to come in and deciding, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe not, but we can get to that in a little bit. Yes. I mean, man, so your, your transition to now, like what I, what I met when I met Alex, like Alex, you're full on opportunistic outdoorsman. And I say opportunistic in the sense of like, whatever is available to chase right now, that's what you're chasing. Like you're all over the place, Absolutely. not opportunistic of like, you just go out and shoot whatever's there. Like you're out intentionally going after whatever in, in whatever season is open through this process for you and not having a family that hunts. 
what have been some of the the influences or the resources that have helped you? Because I imagine there may be folks listening to this show who are maybe coming from a different or from a similar experience as yours or from a non-hunting family. Uh, have there been resources along the way that you, that have just like really helped shape and form not only your perspective, but how you go about doing all that you do? Because man, you chase everything. I, uh, a great question. Um, of course, there have been some, some people along the way who have helped me, you know, here and there offered advice. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that I've had like a mentor, a single, excuse me, a single individual who really taught me from, from beginning to end of hunting anything. Uh, and most of the, the change happened. And I guess I should preface this with uh, the last few years in Florida, I stopped hunting just a little bit that I did. Um, and we would hunt hogs and stuff back there too. But I'm petrified of snakes. Um, terrified. Biggest fear in the world. They snakes. suck. So, they oh, suck. God. They're the worst. They're miserable animals. They're the worst. Um, so I stopped hunting down there mostly because it's so damn hot all the time, uh, sitting in a deer blind and sweating and just dripping sweat, knowing you're just reek. Um, isn't exactly fun. I don't like being hot and potentially stepping on snakes and water moccasins all the time, just kind of, uh, kind of, and I took away some of the fun. So I stuck yep. to what I knew, what I did best, which was saltwater fishing, which is fun. So up here, when we moved, um, it, I started, I wanted to be outside in all seasons. Uh, I, I, I guess I should also preface this with, we had a three-year stint up in the Wausau area when I was in high school. So I, I did have some prior experience with Wisconsin and uh, but about three years uh in my teens when uh, uh, try to forget those times. Um, <laughs> but, but so like I had, I had ice fish before. Right. Um, but I would not say I was an avid ice fisherman. Uh, I, I had done it a handful of times when we were up here before, but wanting to get out, I want to go ice fishing. I want to be outside because of this change of seasons or the change of seasons that what you've got now, you've got for a few months and then it changes. You, damn well better appreciate it while you've got it. And is it, is it going to be cold? Yep. But days like yesterday, I'm, I'm, I wish it was 10 below zero outside. <laughs> and when it's yeah. 10 below zero outside, I'll be thinking of days like yesterday and be like, man, I can't wait for that change, but it changes. It's cyclical. It's natural. So when we moved, I started just trying to be outside as much as I possibly could. Uh, for one reason or another, whether it was hiking um, or um, uh, after we got past the move, the move itself. Um, for whatever reason, I could be outside. I wanted to be outside walking trout streams just to go catch you know, tiny little brown trout and uh, little rainbows just because I can. Uh, why not? It's, it's wonderful. It's all close. That we were lucky. We're very fortunate to live in an area where within about 15 minutes, I can do pretty much anything that I would please um, outdoors wise. So why not after work, drive 15 minutes, go walk the trout stream for an hour and a half and then come home. Um, so it, and you used the word opportunistic earlier and that's exactly what it is. It's, it's opportunism in the sense of, of 
trying to take advantage of every opportunity that's in front of me when I can. And there's not enough time to do it all, which is great. It's a hell of a problem to have. Yeah. Um, so it's really, it all started when we moved here out of just the desire to be outdoors as much as possible. And it just sort of evolved and grew from there. Yeah, man. I've, I've mentioned some of what you just said on this show before of the differences between outdoor recreation in the deep South and outdoor recreation in Wisconsin. It's dramatic. Like unless you have, unless you have walked through water moccasin ridden swamps before the sun comes up, you haven't, I mean, it's bad. Yep. And sitting in a deer stand when it's pushing 90, it's really, really bad. Buddy of mine, duck hunted back home, had an alligator try to climb into his kayak at like three thirty in the morning. Nope, there's a reason I never duck hunted back home. And <laughs> bet your hat, that's why. Um, there's no way. Uh, I, I just, it's just not worth it. It, it. it wasn't fun. It took the fun out of it. Um, so uh, for me, at least down there, and I mean, stingrays and sharks are bad enough, and flesh eating bacteria in the Gulf of Mexico is bad enough. But those are all things that are they're more reasonable and that I can accept and deal with. There's a reason I, I, I uh, that my uh, so much of my I didn't even like hiking back home unless it was January or February. It, it was just too hot and too many snakes and all of those things that I just plain don't like and just took the fun away from it or, uh, for me at least. It, it just it just kind of took some of the fun out of it. Yeah, and I, another piece that I want to touch on here um, is access. Now, obviously down where you were saltwater fishing, you can anybody with a, with a boat, it doesn't even need to be a nice boat. You can go out and catch some fish, uh, especially on a nicer day when you don't have to worry about, you know, storms popping up on you or anything like that. Um, but two days a year. What's that? Two days a year. when yeah. You don't have to worry about storms yeah. popping up. Both, both of those days you get out there and it's fantastic. <laughs> um, but, but really like when it comes to public land, I mean, most of almost everything you do here is public, right? Absolutely. I think I've got one, I think I've, I've got one property that I hunted last year for like the holiday hunt um, that I just randomly stumbled upon a private property and I got offered um, another one this fall, which we'll see how that pans out. But uh, yeah, absolutely. Everything that I've done here is on public land. Yeah. And you're chasing at this point, ducks, pheasant, deer, turkeys. In fact, we both hunted the same turkey this year. Neither one of us got him. Uh, yep. He he was, Bad. dude, he was too visible, man. Yep. You knew he was going to die. I know, I know. And the one day I had him coming in, I had to get back to work for a work meeting, and I was kicking myself because he was coming in and sad, sad times. But lessons learned, that was my first spring turkey season. So I considered it a success that I at least saw one. I, I didn't turkey hunt back home. So I'm, uh, uh, trial by fire, right? Learn the field. And I did. So, and for those folks who, uh, do listen to the show a lot, you might, you'll, you'll know what Turkey I'm talking about because that's the one that, uh, he was roosted on the edge of public right by private. He was very visible on this private field and uh, somebody ended up shooting him right out of the tree one morning. I'm set up on him just, you know, 150 yards from him or whatever. And boom, somebody got him right out of the tree, which disappointing, but Hey, good for that guy. Right. You know, glad that, 
glad that somebody sure. at least got him. So, all right. Sort of good for that guy. I was heartbroken to hear that, that, that we that next week after my tags were done, <laughs> it broke my heart. <laughs> Dude, you sh- like, I've got the video and I've showed it to my wife, you know, who's in that tall clump of trees and I've got my video camera pointed at those trees and like, I'm all set up and stuff and I barely start to call and I'm zoomed in on those trees and all of a sudden you just hear the gunshot go off and it's like the most depressing video to go back and watch it. But I've kept the footage because, you know, I go back and I remember that morning he gobbled too many times. The thing must've gobbled 50 times. I mean, he was just getting after it. So, I mean, he kind of asked for it. Yep. Yes, he did. Hey guys, just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by Tacticam, makers of the best action cameras on the market for the hunter and angler. They're on the cutting edge, making user-friendly cameras to help the everyday outdoorsman share your hunt with friends and loved ones. They also just launched the Reveal X Gen 2 cell camera that provides top-notch photo and video quality at a price point that's in reach for the everyday outdoorsman. And one area Tacticam really shines is with their mounts and adapters that are made with the sportsman in mind. If you've tried to film your hunting and fishing excursions, you know how frustrating it can be to try to get an action camera aimed just right or get it attached to your weapon or in a good spot for a second angle. Well, Tacticam makes all of that a breeze with their line of accessories. This fall, I'll be using their stabilizer mount on my bow with the 5.0 camera and their bendy clamp paired with the 5.0 wide camera for a second angle and to make sure that I don't miss any of the action. To learn more and check out their full line of products, head over to their website, www.tacticam.com. Share your hunt with Tacticam. This episode is also brought to you by Deer Lab, the number one trail camera app for hunters and land managers. Deer Lab gives you a simple way to store, organize, and analyze all of your trail camera data. Deer Lab has tons of great features like the ability to filter photos based on what's in them like deer or turkeys or people. It syncs your photos with local weather to help you pattern your target. And you can even mass edit your timestamps if you're a goober like me and you you forget to set the correct time on your camera. Head over to DeerLab.com to check them out. You can use the code Wisconsin at checkout for 20% off of any plan. That's 20% off of any plan. Just use the code Wisconsin. Now let's get back to the show. Well, man, you had, so we, we hunt one of the same public pieces. Uh, you had a heck of a deer hunt out there this year. And before we jump too far into how your season ended up, what had you done deer hunting wise sort of leading into the season? Had you hunted much on that property prior to the the day you got the deer you did? So I crossbow and rifle hunted. We've been at, this is a, that, uh, okay. Last fall was our third hunting season, third deer season up here. Uh, I had hunted the other two seasons unsuccessfully. Um, it was half-hearted. Uh, I will fully admit, in hindsight, it was half-hearted, but I had uh, uh, hunted to some extent those first two seasons. And uh, my neighbor has a cabin up uh, in northern Wisconsin that we had hunted unsuccessfully, too. Um, and you know how it goes, the deer disappear as soon as opening gun season there can't find them oh, yeah. they're out there on camera the day before but um so that property in particular i had not extensively deer hunted uh i pheasant hunt a lot out there and i got into pheasant hunting actually my neighbor has a dog and i started just hunting by myself solo hunting and just loved the solitude of still hunting without a dog and being able to really 
hone your senses into hearing a pheasant's footsteps, hearing them a single cackle and identify read cover where they might be. And I thought it was so much fun to chase down a bird like that without a dog. Um, we now have a dog, completely different experience, love him to death, but it's completely different. Waterfowl hunting has become my solitude. But so I had pheasant hunted a lot out there and I kicked up deer. I physically almost run into them before sneaking around, um, you know, kick up a doe five feet from you and scare the daylight out of you. Um, so I knew there were deer. I knew roughly where they were because I would walk, especially without a dog, I'd walk the thickest cover I could find out there to try to find those birds that were getting pushed by people with dogs. So um, I knew the property pretty well. I, there's, a, there's so much sign out there, it's almost tough to read, but you can kind of figure out over time where the highways are, where the crossings are, uh, where the bedding areas are. And so I kind of just absorbed this almost unknowingly uh, when I was pheasant hunting. And so when I did go out and deer hunt, uh, I didn't really have a plan. I was just kind of wandering aimlessly around trying to work the wind in a loop that I knew hunting the thickest cover that I could find in hopes of finding and taking one up. And I was still hunting. Uh, I did climb a tree for a little bit and sat in a tree for a while and heard some bucks that were, uh, they were getting after it together, but I never saw them. So, um, yeah, just still hunting around where I had seen sign. Yeah. And you had, I mean, I know the area you're talking about, there was really big sign in there. Like it, this place you're talking about. Yeah. There is a ton of sign. The deer there just really, I mean, I don't know if there are necessarily a ton of big bucks there, but man, the sign is everywhere, but you ran across some, I, I think some pretty exceptional size rubs and stuff like that up on that portion of the piece. So the hunt, the day of the hunt, you had not deer hunted that morning. Is that right? No, I had actually goose hunted in a field that morning and um, it did not go as planned by any stretch of the imagination. So I came home frustrated, sat behind my laptop and worked for a few hours and said, you know what? I'm going to go deer hunt. This is nonsense. I don't want to be behind a computer. So grab my rifle and went. Yeah. All right. So you, you get to the spot. Your plan is I'm going to walk through I mean, by the time you got there, the other gun hunters were gone, right? Oh, yeah. I, I got there at 9.30 in the morning, something like that, uh, mid-morning. Mid yeah, which is which is strange to me for this place. I mean, I had hunted there opening day of gun season, and, uh, man, the place just cleared out. And I'm like, what, all these people just think the deer left or – I, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I think I think people like walking 100 yards from a trail and about 100 yards in, and then they sit. And uh, one thing I've learned: hunt the hunting pressure. Yeah. <laughs> don't hunt the animal. Hunt the hunt the hunting pressure. Yep. Yep. So you went to a spot that was not necessarily a high pressured area, but there had been a lot of pressure around it, right? Oh, and, absolutely. Yeah. And your plan was to just kind of walk through this area slowly, where you had seen the sign, and try to key in on, on something. Did you expect anything to happen or were you just going for a walk with a gun? Pretty much uh, just going for a walk with a gun. Every time that I've been out there when I said, ah, do I hunt deer today? No, I'm going to hunt pheasants. I'll see deer. And every time that I hunt pheasants, I kick up deer. And so uh, I expected to see nothing. I thought I was just going to blow off some steam, go for a nice walk on it. it like in the, maybe low to mid forties, a beautiful day. So it's like, there's a wonder and uh, you know, maybe I'll see something, but I hoped uh, my, my game plan was just like I said, to walk that thick cover that I knew they used. And 
I had seen them either bedded down or kind of slowly passing through. And there's a lot of bedding areas on this property. And I think uh, and, and they do a lot of bedding down on this property and then go to private at night to eat. So I knew there were deer around. I'd seen sign that had all these spots marked on Onyx where I'd seen sign and I kind of hit a lot of these rubs that I had seen. Um, and just still hunting. So looking for an ear flutter, looking for some antlers sticking up above the grass, um, listening for like those two bucks that I heard going at it, listening for them and then trying to sneak around and see, can I see them? And the answer is no. Um, <laughs> but it, it, anything, any type of activity, any type of sign, trying to read fresh tracks, gap, stuff like that. See if I can just essentially kick one up. So I've kicked up enough gear out there to know they generally run to an edge. And then they stop and then they look back. Uh, there's so much hunting pressure with people with dogs that I think they kind of have grown accustomed to hunting pressure. And if I'm saying too much on this, by the way, feel free to edit any of that. No, out. no, you're good. I, <laughs> that's one thing I've noticed on this spot too. I had, uh, not this past year, but the year before, um, I had a small eight point feeding underneath me. It was like November 10th or something like that. And he was kind of feeding around. I was just, just downwind of a doe bedding area. Uh, but he was kind of milling about, didn't seem too interested in does or anything like that, just kind of feeding. And a lady walks by with her two dogs. And I can hear the little, like, bells on this lady's dog's collars. And for some reason, they just, this this buck looked up and watches the dogs walk by. The lady walks by. They never notice this buck standing there. And he just goes on about his business. And I, this spot is pretty heavily pressured, but it receives more pheasant pressure than anything. And I think that the the deer, like you said, have just grown accustomed to it. Unlike some other areas that I've hunted where it's strictly deer hunting and they do not put up with anything. Yep. And I think it's important to mention too, that this property is heavily recreated from people kayaking and people just playing. We walk our, both of our dogs out there as soon as we can. Um, uh, and the leash thing goes out of effect in in July, August, whatever it is. We just go take our dogs for walks, and it's a very highly recreated property. Um, yep. So I think that's exactly right. Just reading kind of what's going on around doesn't mean there aren't deer there. It just means you have to adjust your style, but it might not be your traditional deer hunt of sitting in a stand all day, freezing your butt off, waiting for that, that, that buck to walk through. It's trying to read what's going on around you, not just habitat-wise, but but pressure-wise and adjust accordingly. And isn't that the fun? Yeah. Isn't the fun of deer hunting is adjusting what you're doing to the situation. That's right. That's right. And so how far do you get from your car before you start seeing deer on this particular day? I only saw one <laughs> and I got him. Yeah. Um, uh, so on this day, I, if I remember correctly, I think I walked a total of about nine and a half miles. Wow. Okay. And I mean, it was through the thick crap that nobody wants to walk through, right? So all these thick, dense briars and all the mucky wetland areas and all of that. Um, and no, I'm sorry. That's what my Garmin watch told me. I had, My step count was after the fact. So I had probably, and that, that included hauling the deer out and, and doing all of these other shenanigans. So and maybe I had hunted six miles, six okay. and a half, seven. Uh, I don't know how many steps I had. I had taken at that point in the day, but I hadn't, I hadn't walked 200 yards. I mean, it, it was a, it was a, a long day of traversing thick cover and muck 
and semi-frozen wetlands and uh, all of the things that make deer hunting in November wonderful of, am I going to break through the ice or am I good? Um, <laughs> so I, I, had, I had gone through everything, everywhere that I expected a deer to be, this dense stuff where there was signs, hadn't seen hide or hair of anything. Um, I, I think I heard a couple of roosters cackle. And like I said, I did hear those two bucks going at it, but um, I hadn't seen much of anything except for a guy walking his dog and got the pet of black lab. And that was about, that was about the extent of it. Nice. Um, so as far as this deer goes, he was about 900 yards, I think from where my truck was parked. Uh, not 900 yards as a crow flies, but probably probably 800 as a crow flies and maybe 900 total walking distance. Um, it was right where I started. I probably walked right past him on my way out and uh, he just didn't, didn't move. And I, are you good with getting into the story of this? Oh yeah. Yeah. Let's go for it. Okay. Okay. So uh, the wind that day was out of the South. And so I had planned my whole day trying to walk into the wind to, to remain upwind of him and nothing. So this instance, I was walking back to the truck. My legs were tired. I was, you know, 40 degrees. I was still a sweaty carrying a rifle all day. You know, I was kind of just trudging back, not expecting anything. And, um, I was coming from downwind. He had to have sent me from a mile away. Um, but uh, he held tight and I heard him jump up and he stopped and I knew what that sound was. I knew I'd heard him kicked up enough deer that he jumped and didn't move. He waited a minute and ran and just happened to run to the tree line, which gave me a perfect line of sight. And uh, uh, I had tags for both uh, antlered and antlerless out there. So basically I was like, oh, if it's a uh, deer, as long as it's not like a, a yearling, you know, as long as it's got a little size to him, uh, go for it. So he was running. It was a. Uh, I do not condone running shots on deer for what it's worth, but it was a wide open, low grass field. I had a very stable shot and uh, uh, shot twice, hit twice, and uh, furthest shot was about maybe eighty yards, uh, seventy five, eighty yards. Um, first one was probably twenty, and uh, second shot was a double lung shot. Took a few few steps, and went down, and uh, he actually went right into the tree line and went down. Uh, but I didn't know this at the time, uh, you know, I just saw, and I saw it had antlers and so I was like, oh, through the scope at four power, it looked like a decent deer, but I, I don't know it in, in the moment, especially after walking that much with all the adrenaline then of that deer kicking up, it's not like just sitting there and watching them come in from 300 yards to within shooting range and you're, you know, slowly twiddling your thumbs waiting. It was all more like hunting hunting a pheasant that you don't know is there and that bird flushes and you got uh, three quarters of a second to raise gun safety off and shoot or don't. And uh, so it was more like to think that my duck, goose, and pheasant hunting paid off in that situation. <laughs> and that's why I was able to get a reasonable shot um, or I guess I could say a good shot in hindsight. But um, so yeah, he was uh, probably, he was within a thousand yards of the truck, um, not far at all. and. Uh, Found him after hours of walking, um, plane it was like 1 p.m., 1.30 p.m., something like that, uh, middle of the day. And how uh, how far was he from you when you kicked him up? 
15 yards. I mean, uh, like a terrifyingly close distance when he jumped up, it actually scared me. Um, with all that dry grass and stuff out there, he was, he, he let me get right on top of him before he moved. Man. And the fact that he jumped and stood still, didn't just jump and run. I, I found really interesting, uh, when I played this through in my mind after the fact. Yeah. I, I think that speaks to the pressure out there on this place. And like these deer are just used to getting pushed around. I, uh, I was out there for the opener of pheasant season last year and was sitting in a tree and I had a, a, a young six point come and bed down in a little clump of brush, like 40 yards from me. So I sat there and watched him and I watched how this thing related to where the pheasant hunters were coming in. And he, as the pheasant hunters would move to, let's see, I was facing North as they would move to the East, he would get up and rotate around to the other side of the clump of bushes and lay back down. And they would then turn and work their way over, back over to the west. He would get up, rotate around the tree, and bed back down. And he didn't, he didn't spook the whole time. I mean, they got within probably 50, 45, 50 yards of where this deer was. And he, ne- he, he held tight the whole time. Did they shoot any roosters out of curiosity? Did they shoot at all? They shot a couple of times. But I don't know. He didn't, he didn't, that, deer, that deer didn't react to the gunshots? He did not react to the gunshots at all. Like, didn't even, not even a flinch, didn't jump up, didn't do anything. He just held tight to to the cover. And the only time he ended up getting up was when I had a couple of bucks come running through the exact area where I was. He jumps up then and he watches them, you know, and, and then he kind of trots off just a little bit. And then I shot one put a bad hit on it and all that stuff. I've shared that story on the podcast before, but uh, yeah, I think that just speaks to how deer adapt to pressure on highly recreated areas like, like this one where they're, they don't know what's what. And if they go running three quarters of a mile, every single time something jumps them, that's not going to be good for them. You know, the best thing they can do is what this buck did jump up, look around, figure out what's going on. And man, if you'd have had a bow in your hand, He'd have been fine. Yep. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, hey, there are nine, nine days a year when he wouldn't be fine, and he had avoided that. Uh, DNRH this year at three and a half, the taxidermist said there's no way that based on his diet out there and the, the lack of roads and stuff that he was guessing he was five, five and a half, something like that. But deer had avoided those nine days for years. However, let's say three to five years, three to six years. And that's fascinating. To me, yeah, that's it absolutely is. fascinating. It is. But it just shows the adaptability of nature. I mean, uh, uh, on a tangentially related note, the term nuisance geese, I know the uh, the city of Madison, at least up here, uh, I hate this with every ounce of my being, but they uh, deem some of the Canada geese, the resident Canada geese population, a nuisance because they poop on the beach and they poop on the little bike paths where the people like to go walk their little golden doodles and whatever they probably do. <laughs> the rollerblade. Um, and so they euthanize all these geese every year because they're pooping on the sidewalk and on the little like places where they, where they sit. And I actually had a, a citizen resolution for the uh, conservation Congress last year about doing more outreach and trying to engage hunters in these opportunities because I love goose hunting. I love eating geese. They're delicious. And the fact that these geese are just being euthanized by the city for doing nothing more than adapt to, to, to the environment that they're in is unbelievable and one of the most ethically screwed up things that I can think of that uh, uh, 
that, that just poisoning them to kill them. Uh, I can't wrap my head around it. I just plain can't wrap my head around it. And, but bunnies in the neighborhood, all the turkeys that are in the Madison area that have adapted to urban environments are fine. Right. Uh, but, but somehow the geese aren't. And it, uh, it's something that I just plain hate that you have additional opportunities to give, let hunters help be a part of the solution. If the solution is pooping on the sidewalk, goose pooping on the sidewalk, uh, use your best resource, which is your hunters. Yep. And there's a way, there's a way to do that safely, right? Uh, you don't, uh, you don't have to be uh, Jimbo out there crushing bush lattes and just firing off a shotgun downtown <laughs> Madison. I understand why that's frowned upon, but there's a responsible way to do this. And, uh, uh, poisoning however many geese a year, isn't it? And I don't know ethically how those people can sleep at night. So getting off my soapbox yeah. on, uh, on uh, nuisance animals. No, that's good, man. That's, that's right up there with some of these other projects where, you know, cities bring in sharpshooters to reduce the deer population. It's like, how about have a whole fleet of bow hunters who are more than happy to come in, do special classes, special training, uh, show you that they're efficient and effective with their weapons and then instead of spending money for sharpshooters, you make money off of special tags and it opens up opportunity for people who live in these cities who may not have the same opportunity as folks who live in more rural areas. Absolutely. Um, it, and I'm, I'm a firm believer too on the permitting side of it or the licensing side, there should be annual strict testing to, to prove your abilities to do this, to weed out some of the folks that would be taking these sketchy shots, but then you see things, I don't know if you noticed or saw this uh, a couple of months ago on the journal Sentinel, um, Milwaukee journal Sentinel, they had a deer in urban Milwaukee that had a bow or a bolt or a, had an arrow. I'm sorry, <laughs> obviously from a compound bow through its head. And it deer was walking around in urban Milwaukee park and somebody had tried to poach it and shot it through the head with an arrow. And it wasn't a fatal shot. And that just blew up. And all these people saying, what the hell is wrong with hunters? The fact that it was a poacher, <laughs> you know, let's, uh, you should not ignore the fact that somebody was poaching that deer. Yep. That's a, not an ethical shot to take with a bow. But so you have these things working against us as well, that, that any outreach efforts, any, any opportunities like that, somebody records a cell phone video while, while, rollerblading with little little muffins their dog and eating granola takes this video of this deer with a, an arrow through its head it goes viral and now 10 steps backwards uh, yep. to even having any productive conversation on it and it's really unfortunate it's unfortunate from multiple sides it's unfortunate that, that deer had that happen that's unfortunate that sucks um, uh, you shouldn't be in that situation it's unfortunate somebody was poaching uh, a, like a law or not, you should probably abide by it um, unless you have a moral reason not to. And I'm not sure poaching deer in urban Milwaukee is a reason, <laughs> <laughs> a moral reason to, uh, to to not abide by a law. Sure. But uh, there's so many potential opportunities and uh, everything's just become so polarized that, that you can't even have a discussion. And I really think it's a shame. Uh, urban coyotes uh, are another thing. They're just adapting to their environment and what the environment that we've given them, it's our fault that we're encroaching on their, on their habitat. 
And I don't think people should just be out slaughtering every coyote that they see because they serve a reasonable purpose of predator control. You like waterfowl, we'll get coyotes out there to start killing some raccoons. Um, nest predation goes down. So I know that's a potentially controversial opinion, but it's just an example um, of, of how animals are adapting to our environment and who's to say what's right or wrong, who's to deem what's a nuisance or not. Um, just, I don't know. Yeah. We, should, we should cohabitate and, and we have all together. All of us do. Man, that's a, that's a good idea for a, for a whole other episode talking about nuisance animals, how municipalities deal with them, how we as hunters can be part of the solution, but maybe how we should think about it uh, in terms of, you know, neighborhood encroachment on native habitat. So man, that's, that's really good. Um, Coming back to this deer that you shot, you the, the DNR aged it at three and a half. Man, if this deer was three and a half, I, I'm i not saying that the DNR doesn't know what they're talking about. I have a lot of respect for the Wisconsin DNR. Love having people from the DNR on this show. That deer was a giant. That deer was a freaking yeah. giant. You ha- what, what kind of form did the uh, taxidermist put it on again? So he ended up buying two foam forms um, that he uses for uh, mule deer. He bought the biggest one and then the second biggest one, thought he would use the second biggest one, ended up using the largest form, and then actually had to do a bunch of stuff with clay uh, to fill it out. And this taxidermist, he does not send his ha- uh, uh, hides off to a tannery, so he is fully able to control shrinkage and stretching of these hides, so it is as close to the size of that animal as it could possibly be. It still has all the whiskers and like the hair inside the nostrils and stuff. He did a phenomenal job. Um, but it, to DNR's credit, and the only reason they aged it was because we did get tested for CWD. Um, uh, there's no reason not to. I processed the whole deer and had it in the freezer and was waiting on that result. And I'm not sure if it came back positive for what it's worth, but I, what I would have done. I think I probably would have eaten it anyway for various reasons, but uh, we at least got a test because it's a good practice and a good reason to give the DNR more data. So shout out to DNR for DNR te- or, uh, CWD testing. But so they aged it based on tooth wear, which I also saw that and came to that conclusion when I looked at the teeth. But like the taxidermist pointed out, these deer, tooth wear is dependent on their diet. The same as hoof wear that if you're walking a lot of paved, paved roads, like your dog, uh, our dog's toenails when we walk them on sidewalks get filed down because they're walking on pavement versus grass. Um, same thing with the deer. So the hoof, the wear on the hoof itself and the wear on the teeth, it's an indicator, but it's not the, the, the be-all of how old that deer is because if it was eating softer things, more more of a natural diet like grasses and forbs and, and stuff like that, um, the teeth wouldn't wear as quickly as, as anything else. So yes, it's a good indicator. I know they can look at the, the enamel. I forgot what the technical word the enamel on the teeth is and try to try to age that. But those are all environmentally controlled based on diet and other things. So just based on the sheer size of this deer, it didn't make sense that it was that young. But I might put my, my foot in my mouth and maybe it was. Um, but it was a big deer. Yeah, so what did he end up scoring? So... 
I didn't weigh him uh, uh, first. I guessed around 200, 225 pounds, um, uh, not field dressed. Uh, taxidermist said that based on all the deer that he's seen, he was guessing it was upwards of 250. Uh, so it scored uh, 162 and 6 eighths gross, um, and final score was 155 and 6 eighths because of those damn deductions that Boone and Crockett gives for abnormal points. Um, yeah, nets, are, but, nets are for fish, man. We go with gross score on this, <laughs> on this podcast. Yep. Yeah, so with that, 162 and 6 eighths. Man, that is crazy. I mean, and so, I mean, realistically speaking, if this had been a three-year-old deer, you could be looking at a 200-inch deer at five and a half easily if he was three. I guess. I guess. And that's the other thing that didn't make sense, that the circumference on the antlers was, I don't remember what the number was exactly, but it was not small. Uh, um, but, yep, uh, he was big. And he also had his uh, G2, was G2, I think, was broken off. Um, so, Potentially could have been, if that was a full grown time, like it is on the other side, could have been pushed at 170, but it was not. And not to mislead anybody that's listening to the show, it was 162 and 68. Man, it, a, a giant either way, like the head on this thing, I, I couldn't believe it. When I walked into your house and I saw the size of this deer's head, I mean, it's the biggest deer head I've ever, I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, he was full rut and just the neck, the circumference of the neck was just it, it had gotten to the age, and I can give you a picture. I don't know if you want to post I have, I have on your podcast page a picture of this deer, but it had gotten to that size and age where not only was the neck peak rut and girthy, but the chin was starting to go away. Like It didn't have that, that bottom jaw uh, leanness that a lot of them had. It started to look a little bit jowly and a lot of, mus- uh, a lot of muscle on there, and it, it was huge. It was an absolute monster. It takes up our, our ceilings are, I think, nine feet tall in our house. And the mount is mounted. Uh, I actually hit the ceiling when I tried to first mount it and drop it down a few inches. But it goes from literally the midpoint to about two inches below the ceiling. So from bottom of chest to where, where the legs started to tip the antlers up on top about four and a half feet. That's crazy. This thing is an absolute giant. So I'm guessing you're going to be hunting this same place this fall. You know, I, I got a sneaking suspicion that I might. <laughs> you might be back out there. Well, hey, I uh, I just found out uh, about a week, week and a half ago, maybe, I'm going to get to spend 14 days hunting this year. So November 1st through November 14th, I'm going to have off to hunt, and I'm going to oh, be yeah. I'm going to be sneaking around that 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 spot as well. So. Uh, yeah, you better call me too because we can go put some geese down that time. <laughs> Heck yeah, man! That's you know my my hope is that I can get a buck early and then enjoy some of the other things. Because I, I told you last time we uh, had dinner together, like the thing that that I'm most sad about after my last couple of years in Wisconsin is that when deer season rolls around, I just get locked in, and it's like I can't do anything else other than deer hunt. I don't think about anything other than deer hunting. So hopefully I'll be able to create a little more space uh, in my schedule this year to, to enjoy a little bit more of what Wisconsin has to offer besides just, just deer hunting. And I've actually had uh, so shout out to, to some of the the podcast listeners here. I've had some folks message me and be like, Hey, you know, uh, Wisconsin has a lot more than, than deer. Uh, you, you talk about deer a lot and it's like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I love deer though. <laughs> 
it's just well it's a it's alluring coming from uh the part of the country that we come from where a big deer is 125 pounds 150 pounds if you're really lucky yep to up here where 200 pound deer is big but just the sheer volume of deer up here is unbelievable and the amount of opportunity up here is unbelievable so um it's hard to not be have your brain controlled by that yep absolutely so man what are what are uh, plans for you coming up? So we're right here uh, in July. Have you been scouting for the summer? Or are you just kind of taking the summer off and and uh, enjoying all the other uh, pursuits that Wisconsin offers right now? Uh, I've actually been building a little duck boat <laughs> over the summer, and it's just been too hot. And I don't I don't do even though I'm late already, and I don't do well in the heat anymore. So sure, um, uh, I have not been out a whole lot, but. Assuming not much is going to change, my plan is basically, uh, I think September 1st, if I remember correctly, is opening of early goose um, and start goose hunting then and then see if I can find somewhere to find some early teal during teal season. Maybe, maybe not, but uh, at a minimum, try to put some geese in the freezer and um, uh, get married a few weeks later. There you <laughs> go. So, uh, no better way to lead up to a wedding than some, some goose hunting and then play by year and it's really whatever the day brings short of those nine days of gun deer season that I probably I feel some moral obligation to deer hunt um wake up at a ridiculous hour in the morning and say what do I feel like doing do I want to load the boat up and go hunt ducks or do I want to go take crossbow and go hunt deer or do I want to take our dog or bear and go hunt pheasants um what do you want to do go hunt squirrels rabbits what do you want to do so that's my plan nice no structure there you go there you go well Alex Thanks so much for coming on, man. I, this was last minute, by the way, for those who are listening. I, I texted you yesterday. I was like, hey, any chance you want to record like tomorrow? <laughs> and you were like, sure, let's do it. So I appreciate you coming on, man. Uh, yeah, and definitely do get me those photos uh, for this deer so that we can post it with the episode when it goes live. I absolutely will do. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Anytime, man. And that is all for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Alex for coming on. He and I have actually been texting back and forth already about some ideas for some other episodes this coming fall. So excited to have him back on pretty soon. Big thanks to the partners who help us keep this train rolling. Tacticam, Huntworth, Deer Lab. Go check them out. If you enjoy this podcast, share it with like-minded Wisconsin sportsmen and women. And until next time, Get outside and enjoy the incredible resource that is ours as Wisconsin sportsmen.